0: Alright, so uh, this morning we continue uh, a series we're in this summer called Overflow. It's kind of going to take us into the rest of June and throughout July. And it's really simple. Um, We're just asking whoever's up here on a Sunday morning to share out of the Overflow of what God's been speaking, of what God's been stirring, of what God has been doing in his or her life. And uh, so that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm just going to share some overflow, uh, what I've been experiencing lately. And I just want to begin with a story. You know, this story is told in different variations, but uh, the way I heard it goes something like this. It's the story of Michelangelo. You guys are familiar with who Michelangelo is. He he painted you know that ceiling on the Sistine Chapel, and it's a story that goes like this. Michelangelo was wanting to recruit some workers to help him with that incredible project, you know, the, the painting of the Sistine Chapel. But since he was so well known, you know, as an artist, you know, everyone wanted to work with him. But he wanted the right kind of person to work with him. So the story goes that one day he disguised himself. And went out into the community searching for workers to assist him with his project. And as he was walking along, he came across an old man kind of in front of a church building who was mixing some cement, probably in a wheelbarrow or something, just patching a sidewalk, you know, in front of the church. And Michelangelo, a disguised Michelangelo, walks up to the old man and says, What are you doing? The man kind of, you know, like, kind of looks up, straightens up and says, I'm building a cathedral. Michelangelo hired him on the spot. Friday night at midnight, uh, I returned from a study trip to the land of Israel. And that was one of the stories that I heard on one of our devotions in the morning from Ray Vanderlaan. And uh, it was an amazing trip. It it really was. I mean, I know this is cliche, but it really was a life-changing trip. And I know that there's some of you listening this morning who've experienced that same trip that I went on. You know, I know Sheila went on this trip last year. Um, Ron and Jane were telling me that they were on this trip like 15 years ago. Rose, I don't know if she's here this morning, like Rose Van Heitsma, like she was commenting on some of my pictures. She went on this trip a long time ago. I don't know if uh, Leslie, uh, Chad and Leslie Vanderhals might have went on. Anybody else been on a trip similar to what, what I just went on with Ray Vanderlaan or somebody else like Emily? Like it, it was an amazing epic trip, and I'm so grateful um, for, for this church family for allowing me to, to go away for 16 days and be part of something like that. I'm grateful for the people who invested in me to make it possible. Um, it, was, it was an amazing trip. I, I compiled um, some stats from the trip that I thought would be kind of fun, you know, to share with you this morning. It was a 16-day trip total, I spent 15 nights in a hotel, and we weren't roughing it. I mean, these were some some pretty nice hotels. Uh, 26 hours, 25 minutes in a plane in the air, you know, total for this trip. Uh, 14 straight days of hiking. And I don't mean just like light hiking and casual strolling. I mean, I mean like hiking. Hiking in the desert, hiking in the heat, hiking up mountains, hiking in the plains. It even felt like hiking going around Jerusalem, up and down and everywhere in the crowd. 14 straight days of hiking. And I looked at, uh, I have an iPhone, and I looked at the health app, you know, at the end of the trip, and I don't know how accurate the health app is at measuring things, but according to the health app on my iPhone, we walked a total of 90 miles, 90 miles walked or hiked. I think it was more, it felt like more, Um, but, but that would be the equivalent, like if you were to walk out the door here and walk to Ludington, to the House of Flavors, and then go three more miles. That's like how far we walked or hiked on this trip. I mean, try that sometime. There was 219,702 steps, you know, during those 14 days of hiking. A total of 758 flights of stairs. So if you were to take the Sears Tower, what's it called now? The the Willis Tower. If you were to take the Sears Tower, which is 110 stories, and stack it like... on top of itself seven times and then start at the bottom and walk all the way up it was like that many stairs climbed you know elevation wise on this trip I ate 22 payday candy bars (laughs) it's a great snack Um, I'll just yeah I probably urinated outside like 42 times It's a lost art, it really is, like it, it's a community builder, I tell you, unless you've been on a trip like that, it builds community among the women and the men, like, you know, Ray would be walking along, okay, washroom stop, you know, women to the left, men up ahead to the right, I mean, that was your day, that, that's, that's how you took care of business. And I filled one journal, like front and back, which is surprising, some people thought I'd fill more, but there's a lot of stuff in here of, of notes. It was an incredible experience, and it's the kind of experience, you know, that's, I've only been back like 36 hours, like still needs to sink in, still needs to kind of find its way into my life, and I need to process it a lot, and then I need to, to work, let it work its way out, and, and I, I, trust me, it'll work its way out, you know, on some Sunday mornings when I'm up here, but my goal isn't to just regurgitate to you, you know, everything that I learned you know, and to just have everything be Hebrew and this and that. I mean, that's, that's not what I'm going to do. I, I really want to live this before I lead it. And so I got to make sure I'm living it and then I will overflow it to you, you know, as I lead it. But um, some of the big takeaways, if I were to summarize, you know, some of the big takeaways for me. Is that I, I really, um, I really began to understand that while the Bible is written for us, it's not written to us. was written to a specific people at a specific time and there's there's truth in it that's for us today but um it really really helps to understand the the context and the cultural climate of when stuff was written that really like lends itself to some depth and some dimension and some layers you know there was things that popped up for me that I never knew Or thought about before. Because I understand it from a western point of view. Instead of an eastern point of view. So that was really, really helpful. There's all kinds of metaphors. um, That that just came alive for me. That I'd never noticed before. And I'm sure some of this will work its way out. In the the months and years to come. But metaphors like. What's it mean to be a city gate? What's it mean to to be a standing stone? To be a broom tree to somebody? To be green pastures? to, To be in Getty? Um, if you were here last week, you saw that little video clip I sent along. I mean, what's it mean to be living water to those living in a dry and hot and thirsty land? Um, it was powerful. I, I think I came away with a takeaway that, you know, just reaffirmed that the Bible is not like a bunch of stories, it's one big overarching meta narrative. It's one big. Love story of a God for his people and a God who wants to get his people back and was willing to, to, to give of himself sacrificially to get his people back and, is, and is, has invited his people to now do the same, to help get other people back and, and to, to model their lives after Jesus. That, you know, that, that God's love language is obedience. That God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the love language that we get to express back to God is our obedience to him. Um, But there was one moment in particular that I decided I'm just going to share briefly about this morning. And uh, that that was a moment we had early on in the trip. So Lord, um, as we kind of engage with your story this morning, I pray that you would help us to see you and to see ourselves in this story. Um, bring to life into light whatever it is that you have for each one of us this morning. May we hear it, receive it, and act on it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the, the story I want to look at this morning is a very, very familiar story. Um, it's the story of David and Goliath, right? And, and if you want to follow along in your Bible, I encourage you to find 1 Samuel 17, um, it, we're going to look at a lot of verses because it, it's, it's such a great story. I don't want to leave anything out in this story. And, and I invite you to, even though you kind of know this story, um, to, to let God speak to you fresh this morning. So First Samuel 17, uh, we're going to read the first 50 verses. And they'll be on the screen if you want to follow along there as well. So let me just start reading it. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socah in Judah. They pitched camp at ephes between Soka and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with the valley between them. Now a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like that of a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went on ahead of him. I just want to pause right there and just do some conversions real, real quick, just so we get a... A sense of scale for for who Goliath is. So Goliath, it's estimated, was probably nine feet, three inches tall. So real close to kind of, if you see me up here, just add like a bunch of feet. Okay. He was nine feet, three inches tall. His armor, his coat of armor probably weighed 125 pounds. The the shaft of his spear was probably two to two and a half inches in circumference. And, And the spearhead maybe weighed up to 15 pounds. I mean, this was a burly man, okay? Verse 16, or uh, verse eight. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David, here's where David enters this story. David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, uh, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The first one was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening. And took his stand. I just want to pause there a minute. Um, In other translations it says, You know, every day at mid-morning and mid-afternoon. Now that's significant because every day at mid-morning and mid-afternoon is when the Israelites would offer their daily sacrifices. It's when they would offer their sacrifices to God. So Goliath, I mean, we got—we got to catch this part. Goliath was not only taunting the army of Israel... He was intentionally rebuking the God of Israel. At the very moment, Israel would seek to honor and worship him. And that's how the Israelites would have viewed this. This wasn't just the army of Israel versus the army of the Philistines. This was a battle between the God of Israel and the gods of the Philistines. This was a battle of worshipers. This was a a declaration, a contest, whose God was more powerful. That's how the Israelites would have viewed this contest. Continuing. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. Now as he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine champion from Gath stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him with great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So they repeated to him what, had been, what they'd been saying and they told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and he asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave these few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David's like, now what have I done? said David, can't I even speak? Then he turned away to someone else and he brought up the same matter and the men answered him as before. What David David said was overheard and it was reported to Saul, King Saul. So King Saul sent for David. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and I struck it and I rescued, from the, sheep, I rescued the sheep from his mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair and I struck it and I killed it. Your servant has, been, has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Just pause right there a second. David kind of cleverly is is giving a commentary to Saul on Saul's lack of being a good shepherd for Israel. I mean, Saul is the king. It's his job to shepherd the people of God. What a shepherd does when there's a threat, what a shepherd does when there's a bear, when there's a lion, is the shepherd takes care of it. The shepherd goes after the lost sheep. The shepherd defends the flock. David's given a clever little commentary like, you're not doing your job, Saul. I'll do it. I'll go take care of this uncircumcised Philistine. And and that's his way of saying this non-Torah observant person who's challenging the God of Israel. Verse 37, David continues as he's talking to King Saul. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to to David, go and the Lord be with you. I, I don't think Saul really thought David would stand a chance. It's just a way of get rid of David. Then Saul addressed David. He dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and he tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistines. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over, and he saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health, and and he was handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog, that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his own gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals." David said to the Philistine, you come against me with the sword and the spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in heaven. Hang on to that phrase. Then the whole world will know. The world will know who's God. All of those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly forward to the battle line to meet him and reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down onto the ground. I think that's interesting that he says it that way. He didn't say like he fell, he fell face down, almost like in worship of the God of Israel. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And if you keep reading in that chapter, you you know the rest of the story. Sort of rallied the Israelite army and and they surged forward and had great victory over the Philistines that day. I want to share just a a few pictures um, from my trip to Israel and just being in the vicinity of where we think this battle took place i I actually uh have five stones up here that I took from the riverbed you know it it's a, it was a dry riverbed and it probably was a dry riverbed during david 's day too i mean the the river runs when you know the The rains come and fills up the wadi and the water runs downstream. Um, But probably it was a dry riverbed at that time. And I picked up five stones. You know, it says David picked up five smooth stones. Most scholars believe, you know, what he was really looking for was a a rock like the size of a racquetball. Maybe, you know, maybe more rounded, you know, that would sling well in his sling. Um, but, But these five stones came from the very riverbed where we believe, you know, this confrontation took place. I got a picture of me standing in that riverbed right there. Kind of look like Dora the Explorer, I think. <laughs> I regret buying that hat because I got made fun of a lot on the. I didn't get sunburned, but uh, I got called Dora the Explorer, Opie, Gilligan, you know, I, I had all kinds of little nicknames for me on the, on the trip, but I didn't get sunburned, but, but that's the riverbed right there, and you can see others kind of picking up the stones um, there. And then uh, this next picture is up above that riverbed. You can kind of see some sheep down in the, the foreground and like this this hayfield out back. But um, it's believed that, that this is likely probably the, the spot where this battle took place. You know, you, you have the Israelites up on this hillside and you have the Philistines up on the other hillside. And, and it maybe somewhere, maybe not this exact spot, but somewhere in this valley is where this epic battle Took place, And so we were up there on that hillside and, and just kind of reliving this story. And it was really, really powerful. It's one thing to read it, you know, like when you're here in Michigan. But it's another thing when you're like at the spot possibly of where this took place. And, uh, and, and then um, kind of we, we moved, you know, kind of along that, that hilltop and we, we came to these ruins, um, which is uh, Shereem. Um, I don't know if I say that correctly, but, but there's this ruins that were discovered, and if, as they're being excavated, um, it's thought, this is a really big deal, like that, that this was an Israelite ruins, that, that this um, is where the Israelites perhaps had a fortress, you know, during this time, and uh, there's, there's a, an archaeologist, his name is Garfinkel, who's kind of a leading authority on, on, on this particular you know, dig, and uh, Ray was telling us, Ray Vanderlaan was telling us, um, that one time when he was there with a group, this archaeologist was actually there at the same time. And, uh, you know, after Ray was all done, this archaeologist kind of walked the group kind of in between. You kind of see an opening there. They think that's where a gateway was for for this fortress. Kind of walked Ray into that room and and said, you know, um, based on, you know, my research... I believe you just walked into a place where a boy named David stood before a king named Saul. And uh, it was just cool to, to kind of be in that spot where, where, where this story, you know, likely happened. It was really cool. And uh, here's what I want to say this morning, though. I mean, it's such a familiar story. I, I think we often apply the story of David and Goliath, you know, we apply it to mean like you got to face your giants. You got to face the giants in your life or, you know, whatever you have, put it in God's hands and and he can, you know, do a miracle with it. And I don't think, I don't think those are wrong applications. I I think those are true things. But, you know, after being there and uh, just kind of hearing this story, you know, in a a different perspective, I I begin to wonder now, I wonder if the miracle of the story isn't so much God granting David, you know, incredible courage in marksmanship, you know, in that dramatic moment. But I wonder if the true miracle of the story of David and Goliath is just simply David's daily love for God, his daily trust in God, and his daily living for his God. That maybe it's not so much that God came through for David in a key moment in David's life, which certainly God did, but that David lived for God every moment of his life. And that's maybe what prepared David for this moment with Goliath. I mean, think about it. David was a shepherd. That was his profession. That was his occupation as a boy in his family. He was a shepherd. And just by the way, you know, I've learned that we sort of get it wrong. Like sometimes when we do the Christmas story and we talk about the shepherds out in the field and we talk about how they're second class, you know, people in that society, they're really not. They're not second-class people. I mean, it's a, it, they're well thought of. It's just that the nature of being a shepherd is you're often ceremonially unclean in, in Jewish law. Like you're around unclean things. And so you're often ceremonially unclean just by nature of your job. But it's not a second-class profession. Shepherds weren't looked down upon. I mean, think about it. The primary metaphor we have of God is he's our shepherd. You know, David penned those words in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. So shepherd's not a, a, a frowned upon thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a good thing. But David was a shepherd. In um, throwing stones, think about this. Throwing stones was part of being a shepherd. If David was a shepherd, he threw stones all the time. It's what you did as a shepherd. You threw stones. If David was a good shepherd, and I, he was, then David was really good at throwing stones, Shepherds would would throw stones for many reasons. And and believe me, there's stones everywhere. This land is full of stones. Like Shepherds never lacked for stones, especially in the desert. Um, So sometimes shepherds would throw stones just to pass time. I mean, you ever do that? Like you're out on a lake and you're just throwing stones or you're like, you have a little contest who can hit that tree you know we were doing that in the Dead Sea like trying to hit things and um like shepherds threw stones for entertainment oftentimes though a shepherd would throw a stone to guide the flock okay I mean shepherds primarily w- would shepherd either sheeps or goats now sheep they're an animal that usually responds to voice you know with a sheep you just need to speak you know and the sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd God says that, right? He says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. My sheep hear my voice. Sheep respond with their ears. A goat uh, responds with its eyes. Goats are more visual. Goats think they know where the best place to go is. And, And so you have to guide a goat by throwing stones. Not at the goat. I mean, sometimes you might hit them with, but, but they, they love the animals. You would like throw a stone to the left to kind of make it go right. You'd throw a stone to the right to make it go left. You'd throw a stone behind the goat to keep it going. You might throw a stone out front to make it stop. I mean, shepherds threw stones all the time. Sometimes, you know, shepherds needed to sling stones to defend their flock. I mean, David talked about the, he struck a lion and a bear. I mean, it probably with a stone before killing them. All I'm saying is this, just just think about this. David was a shepherd. He threw stones for a living. God had been preparing David for this moment his whole life. God had been preparing David for this moment with Goliath his whole life. This dramatic victory, I think, it was simply an overflow of a life daily lived in relationship with God and devotion to him. That's the power of of this story. And I want to offer that picture as a metaphor to us this morning. And here's what I want to suggest. Because it was suggested to me and and it makes sense to me. Everyone has a stone to throw. Everyone has a stone to throw. David's stone was being a shepherd. That was his stone at that time in his life was being a shepherd. Day in and day out, he worked at being the best shepherd that he could be. I mean, I wonder if he sometimes thought, if God were a shepherd like I am, what would he be like and what would he do? And then tried his very best to be like that and to do those things. I think that was how David lived his life. How would God be a shepherd? Well, he would be a gentle shepherd, he would speak to his sheep, he would guide them, he'd go after the lost sheep. So that's how David was a shepherd, the way God would be a shepherd. David's stone was being a shepherd. You know, what's my stone? My stone right now in my life is, is being a pastor, is being a, a shepherd of, of this flock. And, and I want to be the very best one that I can. I want to put the work in, day in and day out, of, of being the kind of shepherd that I imagine God would be if he were me. I want to be like him. I want to do the kinds of things that he did. What's your stone? What stone has God given you to throw? Everyone has a stone to throw. You know, maybe your stone right now is you're a student. Maybe you're a builder. Maybe you're a truck driver. Maybe you're a farmer or a business owner. Maybe you're a machinist, a nurse, a waitress, a teacher. We have lots of teachers in this particular flock Maybe your your stone to throw is in finance. Maybe you're a factory worker. Most of us have multiple stones to throw. You know, um, you're a dad. You're a mom, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a sister, a brother, a son, or daughter. Those are stones to throw. Whether you're young or old, retired, there's no such thing as, oh, I'm just a this or I'm just a that. Whatever it is, whatever is your stone, God's given you that stone. and He's given you the responsibility. He's given me the responsibility to to throw it, to put it into action. Whatever you do, in whatever current season of life you're in right now, throw your stone. Be all in. Throw your stone. Do your job. Live your life in such a way that it brings glory to God and benefit to others. Ask these kinds of questions. If God were me, throwing this particular stone, what would he be like and what would he do? And then seek to be like that and to do those things. David threw his stone that day, not for his glory, but so that the world may know. So that the world may know who God was and what he was like. So throw your stone. Look at somebody next to you right now and say, throw your stone. With some like, passion, <laughs> throw your stone oh, yeah. that the world may know, right? <laughs> that the world may know. Throw your stone with purpose. Throw your stone with passion. Now here's the deal. Not every day is going to be an epic battle and victory like David had with Goliath that day. Most days are going to feel probably ordinary. But it's those days that prepare us for the extraordinary. It's those ordinary days that prepare you for the bigger things. David knew that throwing his stone is what allowed God to use him as a partner in God's big story. The miracle of David and Goliath isn't David's marksmanship. It was David's faith and David's trust and coming to the battlefield when he was needed, trusting trusting God fully in that moment because that's what he'd been doing all the other moments of his life up to that one. Victory over Goliath then was simply an overflow. It was an overflow of a life daily lived with God. You have a stone. Believe that. You have been given a stone to throw. Throw it with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Throw it in a way that the world may know who is your God and what he's like. It reminds me of uh, what Paul says. I love this. I I go back to this verse a lot in Colossians 3.17. Paul says this, whatever you do, or whatever you say, whatever your stone is, Throw it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. You've been given a stone to throw. Throw it that the world may know. I'm gonna invite the band forward. I'm gonna close with a song. But as as they come forward and kind of get ready, I just wanna give you a minute to just reflect. What is God saying to you right now in this moment? Are you aware of the stone that he's given you to throw? Are you throwing it in such a way that the world sees who your God is and what he's like? Whatever it is you do, it has a purpose. What's God saying to you right now? Just take a second and don't blow by this moment. What's he saying to you? What's he inviting you into? What's he calling you towards? Just receive that from him right now. Lord, thank you for the stone, the stones that you have given us to throw. There's no such thing as a small stone. I pray that you would teach us to throw our stones in a way that brings glory to you and benefit to others, because that's what you've invited us to in your kingdom. May we take it seriously. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing. And let's, let's sing this song about what it could look like to take our stones and to walk out of this building into the world. And to throw our stones so that the world may know that He is God. Sing this song.